the present we build present relationships in the right way. And you notice I use the word right because I think there is a right way to do this and there's a wrong way. If I act from ill will, that's a wrong way. If I act from negligence or, or, or ruthlessness, that's a wrong way. So I need to exercise my ability to have choice over action and start to create the relationships that I consciously and deliberately know would be good. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here... We go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy folks, it's RJ Singh here and thank you for joining us on another episode today. I am joined by a good friend and mentor, Bede Draper. Some of you may remember Bede from season two where we talked about human suffering, the psychological condition, and how we could become a better friend to living in reality. And look, today we unpack something just as interesting, and it's all things relationships, primarily focusing on romantic relationships and marriages. Now, Bede has repeatedly said something to me over and over since I've met him, and that is our relationships aren't what we think or feel about them. It is effectively what we do in them that really dictate the nature of our relationships. And I think that's brilliant. Now, Bede is by no means a relationship expert. Many of you that heard him on season two, those of you that don't know, the man is brilliant when it comes to philosophy, comparative religions, ethics, everything. The man is just a walking encyclopedia, but it, uh, it didn't help him navigate romantic relationships any better. All this knowledge did nothing for him. And at the age of 52, he was on the brink of another divorce. And he came across the teachings of a Swami Dayananda, a Hindu monk in India. And as he started to study more of his work, he realized that this man had a way of seeing and being in the world that was profoundly impactful. And Bede and his wife, Sylvia, packed up and they moved to live with the Swami in the community there in India. Now, initially, Bede went to India to study the Swami's psychology and ultimately became a recipient of his teachings, as with his wife, Sylvia. Now, Swami Dayananda's teachings not only had a transformative effect on the way Bede experienced the world, experienced himself, but it also changed the way that he started to conduct himself in his primary relationship. And through simple acts, simple acts, not profound acts, Bede was able to transform his relationship with Sylvia. Now, it's really interesting. They don't hide from it. They are still together. I've had the pleasure of meeting Sylvia, and they're just real. And the fact that Bede had all this philosophical insight, all this understanding, and the man really does have a remarkable understanding of the human condition. With all this knowledge, he still could not shift himself. And that's what we're here to talk about. This show is about the practical takeaways that we can all implement day-to-day in our relationships that will see us in a happier, healthier 
relationship. Anyways, folks, I'm out of here. As always, please do rate this podcast, leave us a review, let us know what's working for you, what we could do better, and uh, peace out. Enjoy. Hello, Bede, and welcome to Ultra Habits. This is the second time around, and we had to get you back on the show. Uh, as many people do know, I talk about you often. Um, I may not necessarily mention your name, but I do talk about a key influence and mentor in my life when I refer to things around relationships or emotions or what moves me, as you'd like to say. And I felt like it was really necessary to get you back on the show particularly to talk about relationships and marriages. So we're super grateful to have you on the show tonight, Bede. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you invited me, RJ. But look, I, I listened to one of your videos, uh, one of your talks on YouTube uh, a couple of months ago around marriages. And it's super relevant, particularly with the age group I'm in. You know, I hang around with people that are kind of approaching middle age, middle age, or maybe they're on the other side of middle age. And Know, married and kids, things get a bit stagnant, lots of disagreements, lots of negative patterns. And, you know, particularly the men I talk to, it's just like, it's just this con- confusion around why there seems to be this continual misalignment in the house. Um, and there was something that you said to me a long time ago. And I think that we'll start the show here. You said our relationships, RJ, our marriages, our relationships, whatever. It's not what we think or feel about them. It's what we do in them. And that really, that really hit home for me, B. Can you, can you unpack that? Can you talk about what that actually means? You see, in order for me to act effectively, I have to look at what I'm dealing with. I have to understand what I'm dealing with. And if I think that my relationship is my thoughts and feelings about my wife, then I'm concentrated on me and my thoughts and my reactions. But when I'm in a relationship with another person, what happens is I am relating and I'm relating. So basically what's important, what the relationship is, is what actually happens between me and my wife. And when I say what happens between me, I'm, I'm, I'm very specific in what I mean by that. What I say and do, so what I say and do, and how I say and do. This, at any one time, this is my relating. The question is, is, is this relating a happy, a happy relating or is it an unhappy relating? Hmm. So are you saying that in a situation where I'm upset with my wife because she may have said something that's triggered me, I'm supposed to suspend that feeling or thought and focus on my conduct? Not quite, in the sense that, well, first of all, you can't help the reactions that you have. Like if I say to you, for example, what's your name? What happens, RJ? RJ, yep. It it just pops up. So when our spouse says or does something we don't like, we have a reaction. Now, that's that's not the problem. The problem is, is that that my upset or my my unpleasant emotions can become my issue as opposed to me relating to my spouse. In other words, there's one issue. I have the reactions. I just have to accept those as a fact. But the most important issue is, for example, have you ever uh, felt the 
urge to say an unkind thing in react in, in response to what your wife has said or done, RJ? All the time. <laughs> okay. All the time. Okay, so we're moved emotionally to act. However, what's important is what the relationship demands so that I need to relate in the right and proper way. In other words, a way that will build a happy way of relating with my wife. So if I say a harsh, if my tone of voice becomes harsh and I speak unkindly, that is my relating. The question is, is that does that, even if it feels good emotionally, does that help the relationship? For an individual in that particular situation to the feeling or thought arises, maybe untoward. However, the individual focuses on the conduct, which is about relating to the spouse in the effective right way. Is that a skill, the ability to kind of not go with the emotion or the thought? Of, of course it is. First of all, unless I actually see the value of concentrating on what I'm saying and doing and how I'm saying and doing it, and being able to evaluate that saying and doing in terms of is this helping my relationship or not? So, because I have to evaluate my behavior according to a context. So, what's important is I need to be, I need to shift my emphasis in all, no matter what the relationship problems are, so called, they're always, is what's happening between myself and my wife. There are certain actions that are helpful and the, and I can see the fruits of those actions because it doesn't make the relationship, first of all, worse. And, and best of all, it might make the relationship better. When the relating is happy, you have a happy relationship. When the relating is unhappy, you have an unhappy relationship. It sort of follows. So back to your point, your relationship is not what you think and feel. It's what's happening between you and your spouse in terms of what you are saying and how you are saying it and whether what you're saying and how you're saying it is helpful or destructive. Just to make this clear, are you saying, are you suggesting that the global perceived issues in the relationship can be solved in how we conduct ourselves in the moment? Well, yeah, what I'm saying is if I wish to improve my relationship, have you noticed that when, you, that when you're warm and close, there's a feeling of cooperation and you can talk about things easily and you mm -hmm. tend to resolve mm -hmm. them? But when there's just sniping and, and talking unhappily and fighting of various kinds, right? Because as human beings, we have a tendency to fight when we don't get what we want, right? So what happens is, is that we start to relate unhappily and then because we're relating unhappily, the relationship becomes unhappy. When we, right here, right now as I am, if I start to relate happily, it's the results are instant. Sometimes I find myself with my wife, and this happened yesterday, but it happened with her towards me, and she actually apologized for it. Mm -hmm. She's she was in a in a kind of a, a bad mood for the last couple of days of weather and mm -hmm. just some other things. And she had made a comment, and I I kind of I didn't agree with her. And she snapped and she said, you know, why are you being so combative? And I said, actually, I'm not. I just 
I kind of partially agree, but didn't agree. But sometimes we'll get into this kind of place where we are on the contrary to what each other says. It just seems like we're we're not necessarily on the same page and we kind of don't pick our battles. We'll tend to just disagree on stupid or small things. And it's perceived by either myself or by her at that particular situation as being combative. It's very subtle, but I find that it can happen when we're not traveling well. It's an indication that we're not traveling well when we tend to disagree and nitpick on the small things. Is this something common? Because it, I talk to other men about it and, and it seems that it, it arises not only in my relationship, but I'm just wondering, as a matter of interest, like, is this something that you, you come across? This come, I come across it all the time, except that I don't think the problem is the sniping. And I, that's the manifestation of the relationship. You see, for me, what I can do is this, is that have you noticed that when you have a feeling of goodwill towards your wife or, and it feels like in your heart you feel kind, you have a, a sense of goodwill, you, you wish her well, you want the best for her, you know that feeling of goodwill. Yeah. Have you noticed that when you, when that goodwill ceases to be active in you and you become full of ill will to a greater or lesser extent, even a little piece, a little bit indifferent, even if you know what indifferent. I mean? Indifferent. Yeah. Even indifferent. And yeah. That's, that's a, a dampening of that sense of goodwill. When you fall away from that to a greater or lesser degree, to that degree, you will become hostile. So the thing is that it really matters in sense of we may not feel like at any one moment uh, acting from goodwill, uh, but we can actually choose to act from goodwill. Does that make sense? So even like ultimately we want the spontaneous, we want to actually be feeling the goodwill, right? But at the beginning we got to fake it till we make it. If we see, if, we, if, if even if I don't feel like it, I can use goodwill as a measure. So I, I'm going to go. So I'm going to say, I am not going to say or do anything that's expressive of ill will of any kind. So even if I feel like the ill will, I don't have to, in terms of my action, conform to the ill will. I can act in a kind manner, even if I don't feel like it. And that, so what I'm doing is I'm serving the relationship instead of serving myself. When I want to say something cruel, I'm serving myself. But a relationship is something bigger than me, isn't it? It's a relationship. So are you suggesting that if one individual consistently comes from a place of goodwill, if the other individual is in a, a negative space, it will ultimately transform them too? Absolutely. It will have an effect, unless they're sociopathic. Provided if, a, if your partner has... When they, when they if they can recognize that when they're acting destructively and they feel regret and remorse, right, they are basically a good person. Okay. Like, because they can correct regret and remorse is the urge, isn't it, to correct your behavior? I'm not talking about self hatred. I'm talking about regret and remorse over a particular, I've talked harshly. I don't like that, you know. So the thing is that when you relate in the right way, you see, you can't control your partner. You actually can't. 
Have you noticed that? You can't, you know, they don't do what you, you can't control. But what you can do is you can take responsibility, which is the ability to respond. You can take responsibility for what you say and do and how you say and do it, and you can choose to, I am only going to learn how to communicate and act in such a way that it's in conformity with goodwill. It, it, in other words, you're going to take care of that other person, even if you don't feel like it, because you want to build a warm, cooperative, harmonious bond with that person. You said to me once, you gave me some homework and you said to me, and it was probably the most simplistic yet encompassing homework that I've ever received um, in the form of a teaching. You said that uh, you ended a conversation with me. You said, goodwill and concern is your God. That's it. And, and, and you nailed it, right? Because it's the alpha and the omega. It's where it starts and where it ends. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't actually looked at concern, but goodwill when we're, when we're governed by goodwill, we, we, we act and um, behave in a kind and friendly manner. And when we act with concern, we act with, we take care of what needs to be taken care of. For example, we need to take care of our relationship. If we don't take care of our primary relationship, when we fall away from ill will, we become hostile. When we fall away from caring, we become, first of all, negligent or indifferent, and then we become ruthless. You know, a lot of people that watch and listen to Ultra Habits are super driven. And, you know, I get the sense that sometimes, uh, you know, people in, in executive life, uh, particularly because of the long hours and the focus on craft and work, relationships get the leftovers, right? Like they're not necessarily, we're not necessarily as ambitious about our relationships as we are about everything else. So you're saying that there has to be a proactive position when it comes to our relationship, right? Like it, it needs to be front and center. If we look at human life, you've got three major tasks that whether you like it or not, you have to meet. You've got to learn how to get on harmoniously and happily with other human beings because we're social. You've got to be able to, you have to be able to have a happy love-sex relation and the rearing of children, family life. And you've got to uh, be successful. You've got to bring value to the marketplace in order to make a living that you want. And this is what you mean. But we mean by balance, don't we? So if 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 our life is right in those three departments, everything is going good. If our primary love-sex relation is not in a good condition, that unhappiness will dampen. The, the total quality of the whole experience of you as a person in the world. So let's go back to Bede. You were about 50 years old, right? Practicing 56. psychotherapy. Yeah, I, yeah, I, was, I had a go master of, I've got a master of applied science. I've been formally trained in various forms of psychotherapy. And yet I was miserable and unhappy. So I was in my head. I mean, I, you know, I was, I thought I was quite smart. But how come if I was unhappy, how come, you know, how smart is that? Do you know what I mean? How smart is that? And the thing is that I, what happened was that my second marriage completely collapsed. Completely. It was a mess. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I hated her. I just thought she's just a neurotic Betty. You know what I mean? And she wasn't feeling too good about me either. But so... 
but because I came across a very interesting Eastern teaching by a great psychological thinker, um, not that I left the understandings I got from my study of philosophy and psychology, but because of uh, this man I come across, and I got even so interested, my wife and I went over to India and studied with him for 14 months. What he gave me or understood, you know, what I understood is that unless we understand relationships in the right way, we won't know how to make them work. We have to understand what a relationship is. The what, the understanding of what has to happen before the how. For example, once you know that, oh, my relationship is my relating, it's what I'm saying and doing and how I'm saying and doing it, and whether or not it's expressive of goodwill and concern, once I know that what, that opens up a whole range of awareness or cognition, doesn't it? And then what I do is I don't start correcting the relationship. I start correcting the way I am relating, the way I am relating. I'm taking my attention even off my partner in that sense. I mean, this seems so intuitive, right? Like, you know, you, you know, stoicism has become popular and I know that, you, you know, you, you have interest in that and, you know, there's a various kind of other existential, you know, forms of, of, of study that are around and like, it all seems so intuitive and, and it makes sense, but where did we lose our way? Like, how did we lose our way? Like it, it seems so obvious that the relationship is how we relate i.e. what we say and do, but how have we fallen away from that? We have an obsession about our internal processes, our thoughts and feelings. Now, the fact of the matter is thoughts and feelings, we tend to think that if I could control my thoughts and feelings, I could get my life under control. There is a certain truth to it in the sense that if I come to understand reality in the right way, for example, a relationship consists of people, two people, and what happens between them if that relationship is to be transformed, what happens between them must change. That's a wisdom, isn't it? Now, that is a change in my thinking, but it's it's my understanding. Now, that now I can start to act on that understanding. I can live that understanding, can't I? Right? But if I get caught up, oh, I'm just upset with my wife and I'm upset with my relationships and why is that and is it because of the past experiences and, you know, whatever, I'm not loved enough and all of this stuff. Now, this guru that I studied, his picture's on the back of me here, he said you don't get love from a relationship, you bring love to a relationship. So this, and, and some people say, well, that's self-sacrificing, you've got to love yourself first and all this stuff. The fact of the matter is <laughs> that's not true. We... True, we have reactions. We can't help the reactions we have. We just accept reactions as a fact. I, as a human being, when people do and say something that I don't like or the opposite to what I like, I get upset. Okay. So I have, a, I have unpleasant emotional reactions, which are not bad because they tell me, okay, you need to deal with something here. But how do I deal with it? If I act in an infantile way and dramatize the emotion and say cruel and harsh things, is that right? What's that going to do with the relationship? It's going to destroy it. That's just a fact. That's just the way reality works. And we need to become orientated towards reality, not what I think and feel. We, we need to respond to what's in front of us. In this case, a person who we're in a relationship with 
And it's in our very best interest for that relationship to be good. I had a a friend call me the other day who has a pattern of getting into these relationships where when the other woman cares about him, he starts to repel from the relationship. And he is always, always going after the women that kind of abuse him. And what he tends to do is he gets into these relationships and the women that start treating him well and that are consistent and kind of stable, he starts to pick them apart over time. And he starts to get really dissatisfied with certain qualities to the point of like repulsion. He can't not do this. Like he, he, he just seems to continuously get in the situation. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, it's a loaded question because I've been through this process before, but I know a lot of people do go through this and just wanted to get your view on why there seems to be an inability for many people today. Maybe it was like this before to stick in relationships. They kind of just find that the person doesn't make them feel the way they used to. Right. Isn't it interesting your language? That you see how they don't, they don't make me feel the way I, I used to. Now, the thing is that we won't go into this too much, but Dr. Freud talked about a thing called a repetition compulsion. And I remember when I was studying to be a Catholic priest way back and, and they were talking about this repetition compulsion and they gave a clinical example of a young girl who had an alcoholic father and he used to beat her up. So she just so she was upset and she wanted to find love and then she met someone who she fell in love with. It was just fantastic, right? But guess what? He ended up being an alcoholic and beat her up. She then got rid of him. And she, would, she wouldn't get attracted to nice guys. She'd tend to get attracted to, and she got attracted to another man who did the same thing, and then another man, which seems to defy the situation. Now, I never understood that. I was told that this is, Freud understood it as a death wish, right? But what I understood from uh, this, this teacher, Swami Dayananda in India, is the whole problem is, is, is identity, that we have, we, we tend, we, an identity of who we take ourselves to be is formed in us by the, and crystallized by the time we're six. And from that point on, normally we, we tend to dramatize it by preserving it. So we have an appetite for the very types of painful experiences that have formed us. But I don't want to go into that. I want to say how, but how we can circumvent this. This is kind of an emotional demand to continually repeat, if you like. Now, we don't try and deal with the emotional demand or, or try and go against it. Because what we need to do is grow out of it. So how do we grow out of it? Now, besides the psychological demands of self-preservation of a sense of identity that was created in the adult, you know, we also have what we could call in a human being ethical strivings. They are the strivings of the heart. They are, they are the striving to take care and goodwill. Now, these are the basis of a new life, if you like, right? Because they're based on the fact that even a person who knows, that, you know, they get caught in that, and this friend of yours will probably go, I don't know why the hell I do this, I just keep doing it. So there's a part of him, like what Socrates says, that can examine, we can pause and examine our life. We can pause and we can go, there's something wrong here. Would that be true? Yes. But we've got, we, when we say we examine ourselves, we 
We don't want to examine our thoughts about ourselves. I'm no good. I'm a scumbag. I'm a loser. We need to examine, again, how am I living my life? And we need to, and so we make a shift. We shift from this. You see, it's extremely difficult to have a, a relationship, conduct a relationship with infantile reactions. Have you noticed that? Yeah. We need to grow up, basically. We need to be responsible. Now, the word responsibility means the ability to respond. So we need to build the way we move away from past experiences and unpleasant experiences mm-hmm. is that in the present we build present relationships in the right way. And you notice I use the word right because I think there is a right way to do this and there's a wrong way. Mm-hmm. If I act from ill will, that's a wrong way. If I act from negligence or, or, or ruthlessness, that's a wrong way. So I need to exercise my ability to have choice over action and start to create the relationships that I consciously and deliberately know would be good. Would be good. Yeah. I have to asset. There was a medieval philosopher by the name of St. Thomas Aquinas, and he says, the will, you know, the will, the willpower, will is determined by, is, is a function or, or we, once we know something is good, we can't help but will it. Yeah. So my advice to him was the same advice that was given to me when I was going through this problem was this is the opportunity for him to sit with it and not abandon the relationship. Because if he reflects on his values and what he aspired to in a, in a healthy relationship, this is actually it. And so we went back to the values that he developed some time ago around the ideal partner and reconfirm that he's actually in the relationship that he's aspired to be in, but these feelings and thoughts are coming up and he's got to sit with it and conduct himself as such. And so whether or not that's the right or wrong advice, for me, what happened in that particular scenario many years ago was that I ultimately grew through it and broke the pattern. And I could have continued to stay in that cycle had I abandoned the relationship, which I am now in, um, but I chose not to because I had good people around me that reminded me of what was truly my values. And, you know, my current wife represents that in terms of my ideals and, and, and uh, what I wanted for my future. But in that moment, I was so confused and bombarded by emotions and thoughts. I thought that was reality. And it's a, it's a difficult position to be in, but I also think what doesn't help is we live in a society, is to your earlier point, that's obsessed and is telling us that love is a feeling and it's about what we feel and this whole romantic notion of love at first sight and it to be easy and without struggle, I think further creates and exacerbates the confusion that people are going through. It's it's interesting how you use the word to find the ideal person. As human beings, we're all actually quite ordinary, fallible human beings. You know that without all the flowery embellishments, I am an ordinary, uh, fallible, that means I'm capable, fault human being. My wife is too, so she's not an ideal, she's just a human being with me. But the thing is that I, it's not so much that I find the ideal person. It's I create the ideal relationship with another person like me who's fallible. 
So that, because there's a lot of notions about romantic notions about relationships, like what you're saying. Often the so-called falling in love is a transient psychosis, I think. But anyway, but that's, but that's um, but the thing is that we, what we want to do is the the primary thing with a relationship with our spouse is friendship. Do you know what I mean? The, the primary is friendship, like a, a companion, someone you can share your life with. Do you know what I mean? Someone you can talk with. Someone you know that you've got a warm, cooperative. And um, uh, 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 happy relationship. This is a and this relationship, happy and warm and cooperative, is the fruit or the natural consequence of the way I am relating. The same way, if it's a relationship is disastrous, I never think I I don't look at it as a psychological problem. You see, I know it has a profound psychological effect if a relationship doesn't work. <laughs> I think it's an ethical problem. In other words, in ethics is how do I act rightly? Well, what I need to do, there's three things in a relationship I need to do. I need to, first of all, don't harm. So if I don't, so I don't, so even if you feel like it, don't say the harsh thing you want to say. So you stop harming. You stop harmful actions. This is something you can do. Secondly, you bring the value that's needed to the relationship. And lastly, you do it in the most non-disturbing way possible. And what I found with my wife, my first, you know, second marriage collapsed. My first one, I managed to destroy that too. I'm an expert in destroying relationships. PhD. <laughs> so the thing is that, but once I started to actually improve my conduct and I started to act loving and I started, even though I didn't really feel like it, I actually started to consciously and deliberately relate in the right way do you know that my view of my wife changed? I had I had no idea that my cognition of my wife was directly related to how I related to her. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's interesting. And um, and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, referring to that uh, that value. So when we do our fourth step, we do we take the sponsee through the ideals, we call it the ideals of the partner, right? Like when we do our sex inventory and unbeknownst to the sponsee when, so they write all these values, you know, ideals are loving, kind, beautiful. Sometimes they go even superficial, which is okay. But what we do when we take the sponsees through is we make them realize later on that the ideals that you've listed for your partner, you actually need to embody them yourself. And it's about if you wanted to effectively, it, it, it aligns with what you're saying. It's like, it's not about putting that on the other person. It's about bringing that, that you desire in the space, in that relationship. Now, this is what you're, what you're pointing out is a very interesting thing that the, the, the uh, Indian guru pointed out. We are brought up to be consumers. Is that true in a consumer culture? Yeah. So give yeah. me, give me, give me. I want, give me. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Right now, he said that unless we shift from being a consumer, which is an emotionally demanding little six-year-old, to being a contributor. In other words, I'm shifting the context of my activity. I'm no longer going to be this little demanding six-year-old who needs to be loved and treated with respect and all this stuff, right? But to be learning to grow up so that my emphasis is 
me bringing the value, actually bringing it by my actions and by what I say and do, bringing the value that's needed to this relationship on a moment-by-moment basis. What's needed, not what I'm wanting, what's needed. That is the only, there has to be this context shift and I have to see the value of this. Can you explain to the audience how, let's just say someone's listening to that and saying, well, B, that's really self-sacrificing. Can you explain to the audience or to the listener how ultimately shifting the context to a contributor will actually bring you more stability? How does it actually benefit the individual? How it works that basically if we, you know, what we value, we can't help but love. So we can't help but we are moved to move towards what we love. Would you agree with that? Yes. So if I want love and I want affection and I want uh, uh, acceptance and I want uh, um, to be admired and, you know, all of that stuff, right, this is what I love. Now, while I love that, if you in our Western scriptures we have a saying, as a man thinketh in his heart so that he is. So what I value determines what I'm like, what I value. So if I'm going to change as a person, unless I discover a new value, right, like a value of, okay, okay, I've I've been demanding and all of this stuff and it's really not working and it's stuffing up, but if I really get good at relating to other human beings, not in a perfect way, but in a way that's that's non-harmful, beneficially contributive and non-disturbing, and I learn that, my life will become happier. Not immediately, but my life, this is what we could say is truly good. Now, the word good means, again, that uh, medieval monk, Thomas Aquinas, he said good means, you know, we use that word, but what it means is, first of all, it's ethical. In other words, it doesn't harm people. Secondly, it's, it's useful, it brings value. And lastly, it results in happiness. And the thing is, if I concentrate, if I see in my mind, you know, it might be really good to actually actually make it my religion to concentrate on the good. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So concentrate on not being harmful, bringing contribution and value to the relationship and doing it in the most. Now, once I've established that as uh, valuable, then my will will be going, okay, even though I feel like acting in other ways, I want to act in this way. But we've got to be very clear. We need to. We need to be very clear. We need to discover that this is truly good. That that being satisfying my infantile desires, even though very pleasant, that's not the way to live my life. If I'm clear on this, if I discover the value of living in the right, responsible, uh, uh, and creative and 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 non-destructive way, if I see that that's valuable. That's what changes what moves me. How do you know when you really value something? This is the saying of the guru. He says, when the value of the value becomes valuable to you, <laughs> it's your value. It's in other words, it's, it's in your heart. But it has to become, it can't be external. Okay, yes, I should be nice to my wife. That's not going to work. That's, that's just not going to work. It is a litmus test of that that your, if you truly value it, your willpower will rise to support it? Yes, but well, that's why, why a lot of these uh, self-help programs don't work. 
you must you must have a value that you've actually gone. You know what? Okay, I'm in a you know. It's, okay, I might be in a mess, and I might have got a background, and I might have, been, have done many things that are wrong and stuff like that. But then I go above the the forest and I do the Socrates thing and I examine my life. Because remember, an unexamined wife is not worth living. Hey, what's really good here? What would be in my human life? What would be truly good? So once I understand that relating happily to other human beings is a, a value that if I don't get my head around it, I'm going to be in serious trouble. Now, once that value becomes valuable to me, that doesn't mean to say I don't have impulses that are infantile, but now I've got, I've got something to come back to. I go, okay, now I can start my self-improvement program because I will have a will towards it. And then when I notice that I'm not doing acting kindly, I go, oh, I made a mistake. And I will want to correct. So my orientation now is this, even though I will fall away when I'm learning it, the fact of the matter is I have a, have a right beginning. So is it fair to say then the conduct is the entry point which ultimately drives the recognition and appreciation of the value? The value drives the conduct, actually. Well, what if a person doesn't know which is obvious maybe while we're talking about it, but they don't know with their spouse or they don't, they, they think they do conceptually, but they don't necessarily value the relationship in a way which improves their conduct. If there's like, not a shift in their heart, unfortunately, the way the rules work, they will, there will not be a shift in, in first of all, cognition, won't be or the, the way people see things, and there will not be a change in behavior in the real terms. That's just a rule. So unless there's a, a shift in our heart, which is the discovery of, of you know, where, where I, I come to using my awareness and discrimination, I go, you know what, this would be really good for me. If that doesn't happen, RJ, people do not change. Mm. And you can't fake it till you make it? No, because you can only fake it till you make it towards a desired end. We, we have to have a desired end. Norm, if our, my desired end is to be loved, to be cared for, to be respected, to be admired, to be talked to in wonderful ways, perfectly and wonderfully, then that's my demand. And, and that's going to be, my, I'm going to go, yes, my wife's good now because she's doing all that. No, she's a bitch now because she's not. Uh, so unless there's a shift of context, which is this value, unless I, unless I discover an, a, a, a value and, a value, and let's face it, a human value of, for example, the, you talk about the value of health, for example. That's a human value, isn't it? It's worthwhile. It's valuable. When people really see it's valuable, then they start doing something about their health, don't they? Mm -hmm. if, if they don't see it's valuable, they won't do it, mm -hmm. will they? Unless there's a shift in, in the heart, there's no shift in the relationship. So the, the, point, the, the point of change is the person, the individual. Brilliant. Brilliant. total kind of extreme ownership and, and accountability and responsibility. And ultimately it's freedom because the, the answers lie within us. And that's, that's great in a way to know that I'm not at the whim of the external stimuli, that there's some, I've got some uh, processes uh, that can enable me to actually uh, deal with the situation, right. And not just be dictated to and kind of, flying around uh, like in the wind. So as we start to land this plane, Pete, I want to ask, in terms of when you came back from India and, you know, you had 
this knowledge? How did you, in practical terms, start to improve your conduct? I know that you make your uh, you make your wife tea every night, but is there anything anecdotally that just does? try this? Normally, when you have an argument, one of this one of the abilities in terms of choice over action is the ability not to do. So you may not know what to do or what to say to fix this argument up, but one thing you can do is just don't add to it. So don't continue. You hmm. see what I mean? So Prof- it's profound, not easy. <laughs> it is, but, <laughs> but, yeah. if you, but if you just simply don't add to it, just you may not know what to do, but you go, okay, no matter what's happening, I am not going to say anything with my lips or my actions that that are, are going to to be harmful or, or expressive of ill will. I'm just going to stop. You will find even that, that will be the beginning. And if, and you might stop and then what you'll do is you'll actually then maybe, you know, and life is messy. There's no such thing as a perfect solution, but then you'll kind of maybe just mess your way through and then somehow fix it up. Does that make sense? Because you haven't added to it, it clears away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And generally the other person sees the folly in their ways quicker too. Like, you know, if someone is like, like really the antagonist in the situation, when you don't react, it completely disarms them and they come to reality quicker in my view. And, and also the ability to say, sorry, to the ability to say, look, I've been a complete dickhead. <laughs> I've acted, I've acted, I've acted in a cruel and harsh way. I'm sorry about that. No matter what you said or did, this is not justified, and I, I am very sorry. There's nothing like saying sorry. That's brilliant. Well, B, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I always love to chat with you. I, I talk to you, off, off, as you know, um, mm-hmm. offline uh, a lot, and I love bringing the, the conversations to the Ultra Habits uh, audience. So where can our audience find out more about you and learn more about you, B? If you'll just leave a, a link to my YouTube channel, they can yeah. have, a, have a listen to more of the stuff if they liked. All right, B. Thank you so much, mate. Nice talking, Naja.